everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. Ironically, I'm talking about this subject today, and it's ironic because I, I know I can be a bit irreverent, um, and I'm actually quite prudish. I blush very easily, and so, uh, and yet here, this stuff is right in the Bible, um, so bear with me if I don't make a lot of eye contact with you. Vicky asked me this week um, about what kinds of songs she should pick for worship. And I was like, it should be easy. Just pick all those vast number of sexual sin worship songs that we all know and love. <laughs> what we're dealing with here in the city of Corinth <clears throat> is actually a very perverted sexually promiscuous, uh, it may sound like a place you actually live in in 2019, where, where everyone can justify their own moral compass. Corinth had a, a history of being very sexually depraved. Um, it was a, an ancient city that had a temple that included a thousand prostitutes, part of uh, occultic worship. And the, and the temple was destroyed, and the city was later rebuilt, but the attitude of sort of a warped sexuality was still like a big deal in Corinth. And it was such a big deal that the rich would throw these, these massive banquets and their friends would come and each friend would be assigned a personal prostitute. Very common. Everyone sleeping with everyone. And, and there were these, I guess you could kind of like um, first century versions of of strip clubs and of swingers and open marriages and orgies, sex with minors. Did I mention this was PG-13? Okay, we're all, we all know what's happening here. Okay, just about anything you could think of that happens in our present day happened repeatedly, openly in Corinth. Um, it was so bad that to be a sexual pervert in the first century they would derogatorily call you a Corinthian. It's like there's all kinds of derogatory, demeaning terms that we use for calling someone who, you know, is sexually loose. Back then, you were called a dirty Corinthian. So Corinth was just notorious, a port city, transient, sexually transmitted diseases became associated with the city. Sort of this Vegas attitude, you know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? And they didn't have the medical technology to deal with STDs, so they'd actually built shrines. And, and they built um, these statues in the form of genitalia. And people would actually go to them in the hopes of being healed of their venereal diseases. So we're dealing with a culture that you may look at now and say, well, that's disgusting. Well, it's probably not quite as bad as the one that you and I exist in. It's just um, our dirty little secrets, emphasis on the secret part, 
um, our culture has gotten a little more sophisticated about their perversion. And so I, I just can't get into all the statistics. Um, it's too massive. It's too heavy. I do think I need to paint a little picture and, um, and just hope you can keep down what you've eaten this morning. So we know pornography is, is now a bigger industry than country music, rock music, jazz music, classical music, bigger than Broadway plays combined. Pornography is bigger than NFL, NHL, MLB, NBA. And with the free accessibility of it, the ubiquity of it, I don't know how it's possible that they are bigger than these multi-billion dollar enterprise, but it is so. And not surprisingly, the words most searched for on Google and elsewhere other search engines are sex, porn, nude, erotic stories, etc. 70%. Um, however, of the porn traffic that occurs, most of it, a majority of it, is between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. while people are sitting at their desk at work not doing their job. Additionally, the National Council on Sexual Addiction and Compulsivity estimates that there are between 6 and 8% of Americans who are full-blown sex addicts, and I suspect the same percentages apply here in Canada. People who have dozens or hundreds of sexual partners, people who are online looking at pornography for an hour a day, every day, uh, addiction. And, you know, science is showing us how this addiction is actually carving new neural pathways in our brain. It's, it's entrenching the addiction. It's changing how a whole generation views sexuality and relationships and, frankly, how they engage sexually increasingly in degrading ways, following the cues that come from pornography. And so the age of first encounters with pornography or sexual experience is increasingly becoming a bit of a moving target. I'm not sure we can even get uh, super accurate, up-to-date statistics. And of course, we know of the modern-day slavery of sex trafficking, something that is alive and well in Newmarket. And I have, I have met formerly trafficked girls. They are real. This is real. We, we know that probably... 40% of women in this church, if, if we are a cross-section of Canada, have been sexually violated at some point in their life. And God just weeps over it. And so, as a church, we just can't be silent on these things. So, so last week in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a situation in which a man was sleeping with his stepmother, and the church was blasé about it, you know, didn't confront it, possibly because they had their own sexual sin that they didn't want to be called out on, or maybe because the culture had so influenced them, they were, you know, they were asking questions like, well, really, what, you know, what constitutes sexual sin? What is acceptable and unacceptable according to Scripture? Well, Look, in my understanding of Scripture, anything outside the boundaries of marriage, sex before marriage, bringing other people into the marriage bed, watching other people on screen, 
whatever. That is unacceptable. And, and this was a church of new Christians who had all kinds of sexual experience, confusion about gender and body and sex. And so even though they were Christians, they still had a lot of thinking and behavior that was incongruent with, with Christianity. So Paul is teaching them in this letter, and, he, and he's actually answering a lot of their objections, and he's refuting them, and he's explaining them patiently. So listen, I'll need to keep reminding us of this. In the beginning, God created sex, and he said it was good. Sex is from God. It is a good thing, a gift from the giver of good gifts. We are pro-sex here. God wants us to have good sex. But let's talk about bad sex first. Beginning in, in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, I have the right to do anything, you say. He, Paul's actually quoting a, a, a local Corinthian saying, we can do whatever we want. And Paul responds by saying, but not everything is beneficial. The Corinthians were counting then with, well, I have the right to do anything. But Paul then retorts, but I will not be mastered by anything. So they're arguing, and I'm paraphrasing, look, if there's two consenting adults and there's no children, and there's no rape, and there's no abuse, and, 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 you know, they're consenting. What's wrong with that? Stay out of our bedrooms, Paul. Who cares? Who is it for you to judge? And Paul says just because it's legal doesn't mean it's moral. Just because the government doesn't have a problem with it doesn't mean that God's kingdom doesn't have a problem with it. The ethical standards of God's people and God's kingdom is altogether countercultural than that of the kingdom and culture that we live in. So God's standards are much, much higher. If, if all you can strive to is, well, I don't break the laws of the nation, well, that's, man, that's just the very beginning of Christian ethics. That, that it's not exactly the high watermark of what it means to committedly, wholeheartedly follow Jesus. So in addition, if they say, well, we're free to do whatever we want. Paul says, really? Like, do you feel free? Because you're actually mastered and enslaved by sex. Those of you who are porn addicts, you know you're not free. Uh, those of you who can't stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're not free. Those of you who can't stop going from one troubled relationship to another, you're not free. You're stuck. You're stuck in a habitual pattern of, of sin and death. And you might tell yourself, I'm free, I'm liberated. I, I get to have sex with whoever I want and do as I please. But Paul, Paul's saying, you're actually a slave. Um, those who are free have self-control. Those who are free can say no. And there's a lot of things that are legally permissible but are not good for you. It's getting quiet in here. Some of you are like, oh, man, is he going to tell us to keep my pants on? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. It's not. No, it isn't. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. That's Jesus and he will raise us also. So the Corinthians are saying, 
We just have um, natural biological urges. You know, when you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. When you got boogies in your nose, you blow your nose. You know, we have, we have sexual urges. And, and, and what's so different about those natural, it's a natural biological function. So why so much moral baggage? It's a biological function. It's just the clashing together of two bodies. What's the harm? Where's the foul? Because after all, we're just highly evolved animals. Uh, I think the answer goes back to Genesis 1. Listen to me. You are an image bearer of the Most High God. You are not an animal. And as an image bearer of God, you have dignity and value and worth. And when, when two people have sex... It's not like two highly evolved animals that don't have souls. It's two human beings whose souls are, are connected, not just their bodies. And, and it's a sacred thing. And that's why great damage can be done when sex is outside of God's wise boundaries. It's, it's why sex is so often associated with shame, the invisible immaterial, image-bearing portion of who we are can be broken because of sexual sin. It's not just two bodies. You know, when you sort of have that Darwinian ideology of being a highly evolved animal, well then, if it scratches, itch, you know, if you're hungry, eat. If, if you're thirsty, drink. If you have an urge, then get on Tinder and and look for some hookups, indulge in porn. One of the arguments they are giving is essentially this, and it's a very familiar argument in 2019. It's my body. I get to do what I want to do. Really? Um, It's your body? Who told you that? See, Paul's asking, who made your body? God. Who came to live without sin in a body, be tempted in a body, die and rise in a body to redeem you and your body? Jesus Christ. So, so who owns your body? It ain't you. Even a C-minus student like me can figure that out. He made it. He redeemed it. He, he'll perfect it in heaven one day. It seems like it's his, right? My body belongs to Jesus Christ. My body belongs to God. So you can't say... It's my body. You didn't make the thing. You didn't redeem the thing. You're not going to resurrect the thing. It's all on loan. So be a good steward of it. He gave you a body to honor him, to enjoy life, to worship him, to obey him, not to disregard and dishonor him. That, that's not what he intended in giving us physical bodies. So, so these kinds of arguments from the Corinthians, isn't it curious that they're they're not really all that new, are they? Um, they're the same old arguments. We're consenting adults. Yeah, but you're acting like children. Well, it's a biological urge. Yeah, but you're not an animal. Well, it's my body. Actually, it's not. It's a gift from God on loan. So be a good steward of it. So as followers of Jesus, we view sex, we view marriage, we view relationships altogether differently than the world. Paul continues in verse 15. Do not know do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take 
the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now, most would hopefully say, I've never been with a prostitute. Prostitution is where sexual favors are exchanged for some form of compensation. We, We know when it's obvious there's $20 bills left on the dresser. But sometimes it's less explicit. The guy pulls up, takes a date out on a dinner, a nice play, uh, sporting event, Leafs game, <clears throat> gets a couple of drinks, maybe even spends a couple hundred bucks on the, on the evening. And at the end of the date, assumes that he has the right to some sexual interaction because he spent a lot of money. So either way, it's saying... I expect to get sex because I am paying. And, and that's why uh, more and more women prefer to go Dutch because uh, that way they can look at the dude and say, you didn't pay for nothing. Uh, let's just be clear. There's no unspoken expectation here, which shows you how absolutely corrupted our culture uh, and our world that we live in when a woman feels pressured sexually Because a guy paid for a movie and a bucket of popcorn? Come on. Paul says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. That's a quote right from Genesis. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And so another argument that's given is, I'm an individual, and what I do, it just affects me, particularly sexually. What I do does not involve you. This is a private matter. This is a personal matter. This is not a community issue, okay? I'm not doing anything that hurts anyone. It's my life. Leave me alone. And it's not just teenagers who give this argument, by the way. I wonder how many of you, um, your mom or your dad, gave that same foolish logic, had an affair, destroyed the family, ran off with someone else, and looked at you and said something like, don't take it personally. This is just my life. It doesn't affect you. What, are you nuts? When you have sex with somebody other than mom or dad, that affects the whole family, right? That affects everybody and everything. It does cataclysmic relational damage. The ripple effect is huge. Uh, You're betraying your family, your friends, their family, their friends. You're betraying your church and the relationships that God has given you. We're not islands. Uh, We're connected. And, and, And most importantly, Paul says, we're connected to Jesus. So, so how many of you would live differently if Jesus was always hanging out with you? Hey, I'm going to the strip club with Jesus? Probably not, right? And Paul's saying, if Jesus were sitting here, would we be doing this? If not, then don't do it, because where's Jesus? Actually, right here, right with you. We're always with Jesus, and that's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But it is tragic when Christians run off into sexual sin, because in some mysterious but real way, we're implicating Jesus in our sin because he is present with us. If you're a believer today, um, but he's not a sinner. He's perfect and pure, but he is in some way connected to us. And Paul's saying at a bare 
minimum, his reputation uh, is tied up with his bride, his people, the church. And then verse 18, he goes on. So what's uh, my temptation strategy? What, what should I do in this culture of porn on demand? Well, he, here, here's the verse I got right for you. Flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Run like crazy. Run fast. Be like Joseph from Potiphar's wife. You flee. That's why all single people need to get a good pair of track shoes and, and uh, wear them at all times, even when you're sleeping, just in case. Uh, we talked about this last week. Jesus was tempted in every way and yet sinned not. Temptation is not a sin. Neither is attempting thought. Attempting thought becomes sinful when we stop the thought and we talk to it and we invite it in to stay for a while. No, flee from that. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? God actually dwells in you if you're a Christian. You are not, what? Your own. You were bought at a price. You belong to Jesus. Um, and what price was that? Well, it was, the, it was the sinless life, the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection of Jesus who came as our eternal God and died to claim us as his own. So if you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus. You can't say, it's just me. Nope. Well, it's my body. Nope. I get to do what I want. Uh-uh. Jesus. And so if you're a Christian, Jesus matters to you most. And if you care more about sex, that's your God, not Jesus, because we belong to him. Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your body because the body is one of the ways that we worship and honor God. We, what we do in the body is part of our relationship with God. And some of you are like, no, it's not. Well, yeah, those of you who are looking at porn on your phone every day, how's your Bible study going? How's your small group going? You can't scroll through pages and pages of sexual degradation, all of them, sons and daughters of someone, and many of them trapped in a life that they didn't choose, and then spend a lot of time meditating on the Psalms, right? There's a cognitive dissonance there. You feel gross. You can't be the guy who's sleeping with his girlfriend who climbs out of his bed and then goes to a prayer meeting. It's, it's just too difficult. It affects your relationship with God, absolutely, because sin separates you from others and from God. It kills relationships. It leads to death. That's just what it does. So honor God with your body. Run from sexual sin. I think Paul is making it clear that sexual sin has onerous consequences. Um, now, some of you are saying all sin is equal. Yes, it is. Great. You read James. Ducky for you. Good. But not all sin has the same effects, does it? For example, if I go out and commit adultery, that affects my wife, my kids, the church, the reputation of the gospel. If I jaywalk... Uh, not exactly the same level of damage. 
You know, I've done a fair bit of counseling with couples, and I've never had a couple come in and say, he's jaywalking. I just don't think I can trust him. I don't want to be with a jaywalker. Um, I've never heard that. You know what I have heard? He's a porn addict. She's a flirt. She's got a boyfriend and a girlfriend and another boyfriend. Um, this isn't good. Those have consequences and ramifications that are profound. Paul says all other sins are outside the body. It doesn't mean they're good. It, what it means is when you're sinning with a level of intimacy and sacredness that God intends for sexuality, that the damage can be deeper and the ripples can be wider. And sometimes youth, young adults, singles in particular, like to ask, well, you know, what about other th things? None of it. No intercourse, no outer course, no upper course, downward course. You're course free. It's starting to sound like a Seinfeld routine. No course. Well, where's the line? There is no line. Don't do anything. And then get married and do everything. Okay? Easy peasy. We're not anti-sex. We're pro-marriage. And um, I want to bring up something that is going to make some people very unhappy with me. And I said I wouldn't cherry-pick verses, so I'm not going to do that. When millennial non-Christians were polled and asked about the first thing that came to mind when they thought of evangelical Christianity, you know what they said, 91% said that the first thing that comes to mind when they think of Christians is that Christians are anti-homosexual. So apparently, what we are most known for is who we are perceived to hate. That should shock you. And the next two perceptions are that Christians are judgmental, 87%, and hypocritical, 85%. It's estimated that over 40% of the kids on the street who have left home or been thrown out are thrown out because of sexual or gender identity issues. And this topic deserves a lot more time than I'm about to give it. And in doing so, I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to kick a hornet's nest and raise more questions than answers. So I promise we're going to circle back to this at another date, okay? But I have to tell you, Vicky and I have been on a journey for some time now. We're wrestling with some things, and we believe... It's a righteous anger of sorts, a, a holy discontent concerning how the church, not every church, not necessarily this church, but the broader evangelical church has, to, has displayed such an unloving, ungracious, unchristlike attitude towards the LGBTQ community. And it, it's actually been heartbreaking to us. If the gospel is good news, and if the church is to be the light that warms the world with this good news, then why are gay people leaving the church in search of better news? Um, if the gospel is not good news for gay people, then it's not good news. And so if you want a sermon that sort of gives unqualified condemnation of that community, there's lots out there. Um, part of my sadness is that there are so many, in fact, 
um, by Christians who have almost idolatrously elevated this issue above all others. And I'm asking instead that we as a church would consider this question. What is love asking of us as a church? Because LGBTQ is not an issue. It's about people. We have to stop treating LGBTQ people as an issue to debate or a lobby to vote against, but as a people to be loved. People are not abominations. We are image bearers of the creator God. And sometimes we do things that are abominable, like slander and hoarding wealth, but that does not make us abominations. I realize this is going to make many of you wonder where I stand. I stand on the side of truth, and I stand on the side of love, and figuring out how to do both is actually really hard work. You'd be surprised. I would be surprised how many mature, lifelong Christians at NAC have come to a different conclusion on the matter of committed gay relationships. You know, the, the prohibitive stance is defensible. Uh, you may find it shocking that the majority of Bible scholars who have written books about homosexuality in the last 40 years uh, actually don't come to interpretations that prohibit monogamous same-sex relationship. I'm not saying that's my position. I'm just saying the debate is not about what the Bible says. The debate is over what the Bible means. And so as a church, can we fellowship with people regardless of their position? I sure hope so. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 is one of the six Bible references, three Old Testament, three New Testament, that many understand to be prohibitive to LGBTQ. But, you know, translating from one language to another, particularly a language that can be two to 4,000 years old, is rough. And I, I think every interpreter could, could agree on the larger principle which Eugene Peterson captures in the message. Here's how he interprets that passage. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live. Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. A number of you know from experience what I'm talking about. For not so long ago, you were on that list. And then he goes on to say, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as physical fact, as written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. And I think you'll notice that these sins are never mentioned in isolation. They're always brought up in the context of many other sins, greed, slander, gossip, um, and this, I suppose, is, comes, I guess, at the crux of my indignation that so many outspoken Christian pundits have elevated this to be the unpardonable sin. 
you know, to consider your own sins not as bad as the LGBTQ people, I think is to join hands with Pharisees. In fact, whenever the Old Testament refers to the sin of Sodom, do you know what that sin is? Homosexual sex is never mentioned. You look at Ezekiel's reference to the sin of Sodom. This was the guilt of Sodom, he writes, that they had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So biblical sodomy is not gay sex, but being full of food and comfort with no concern for the two billion people living on earth today in grinding poverty. This is not a rant uh, affirming homosexuality. Uh, it is not a rant condemning LGBTQ. But church, man, we need, to, we need to put homophobia to death. We need to stab it, kill it, bury it in its grave, and if it tries to resurrect, step on its head. This is actually part of standing up for truth. Jesus is truth, and Jesus is not adulterphobic. He's not tax collector phobic. He's not leprophobic. He's certainly not homophobic. Jesus does not have a prejudice against any human being, but if he did, it would be against judgmental, homophobic, religious people. So we need to destroy homophobia. If someone tells a gay joke, kill it. Blurt out that line that's going to make you uncomfortable, make everybody uncomfortable. You know, that's not actually very funny. Don't squirm in your silent agreement. Take a stand for truth. Take a stand for people. And some people are going to mistake you for pro-gay if you stand up for gay people. And that's fine. If, if people mistake your love for gay people as an affirmation of a behavior that your conscience doesn't allow you to endorse, don't worry about it. You're in good company. Religious people often thought that Jesus was a sinner because he had so many friends who were sinners. So take comfort. Jesus has been there. We ought to really grapple with this question. Would a gay person feel that our church is a place where they can explore and grow in faith in Jesus Christ. I realize the conservatives in the room are going to be mad because they'll think I've said too much and the progressives in the room are going to be mad because they felt I didn't say enough. I get it. This is, this is complicated. This is nuanced. But listen, our focus is people and their relationship with God not approval or disapproval of theological positions on same-sex relationships. It's not that the question is unimportant, but it's not of ultimate importance. And this I don't apologize for, and I don't think is actually complicated or controversial. Of ultimate importance to God is that every human being has every opportunity to experience God's extravagant, reconciling love through Jesus Christ. So if you experience, um, if your experience of the church or of Christians has been um, that Christians hate you and that Jesus hates you because you're same-sex attracted or LGBTQ, I am so sorry. 
Um, I can't speak for all of the Christians, but I know that within the depth of my being, Jesus doesn't hate you. He loves you so much. So I'm going to close with this. I want to make this clear. Paul, God, our church, we are not against sex. We are for good sex within the wise boundaries of marriage that God created for our good and for his glory. Now, for someone here today, this is going to be the most important part of this message. Are you ready? You need to hear this. You are carrying around a great deal of shame, a great weight of guilt. And you've just listened to about a half an hour of what the Bible says about bad sex. And you're thinking, if people had any idea how far I've gone, the multiple partners, the multiple times, there's a lie that you're listening to that goes something like this. I'm damaged goods. I deserve everything I've gotten. I should just settle with this creep or partner who treats me lousily because I've already blown it. And who'd want to be with me? Listen to me. You are a new creation in Christ, okay? All things have passed away. All things become new. And God can and does restore and redeem people in such a beautiful way. And you need to take Jesus upon his word on that. So give the past to Jesus and allow the good news to do the gospel work of forgiving and cleansing and healing and renewing and redeeming and restoring. The one who sends the Holy Spirit to empower you and enable you to live a new life as a new person, free of all that shame, free of all that guilt. You need to give your sin to him and allow him to be the Lord who absolutely in every way will reshape, refashion, remake your life, including your sexuality. Jesus invites you to that. We invite you to Jesus. And I'm, I'm telling you from my own brokenness, a, a guy who experienced his own forgiveness, and I'm not standing up here saying, you know, you'd better have walked in here pure, otherwise there's no hope for you. However you walked in here, um, if you take the hand of Jesus, when you walk out, you can have a fresh start. I assure you of this. In his time, by his grace, through his power, by his death and resurrection, people change. It's amazing. I want to invite the team to come up, and we're, and we're just going to give you a chance to respond to Jesus. Maybe some of you today... Um, You'll become a Christian today. Maybe some of you have had the wrong God. You know, your God has been sex. You need to let that go. You need to take hands with the Lord Jesus, the real God, the only God. Maybe there are Christ followers here who need to confess your sin. Jesus is faithful to forgive you. You can leave here focused on the most important relationship which, which alone satisfies the longing of the human heart and that relationship is with a living God and we begin all of our relationships with that relationship 
Because through that relationship, we're able to enter into other relationships in a healthy way with Jesus as the foundation. If you would like prayer, um, I just say, would you come to this um, solarium area? And I wonder if there'd be people like Ian and Leslie and and, uh, Helen and Johan, and I'm throwing people under the bus here, Byron and Linda, who just keep an eye over here and make sure that nobody goes unprayed for. Come out of sadness, wherever you've been. Come brokenhearted. Let a rescue begin. There's hope for the hopeless, for all that have strayed. Come sit at the table. Come taste the good.